Well, good morning, Compass Bible Church. How you doing this morning? It is always good to come back to get to be a part of what God is doing here. He's doing an incredible work, and I bring greetings from the church up there in Tustin. God has been kind to us. It's very interesting. I think it was about almost a year ago where I was here in the pulpit, and I told you of the blessing that God had brought to us with the building, and we thought, man, we've got the building now, everything's going to be smooth, and boy, were we wrong. Like, we just went through a little bit of a tumultuous thing. I don't know how much they were able to tell you, but we did everything that the city asked. We, we complied with everything that the city want us to, uh, wanted us to do, and then we went before the city, and the first time we went to ask them to get a CUP for turning a warehouse into an auditorium to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, they denied us. And they denied us based on things that were clearly anti-God in the gospel. In God's kindness, he surrounded me with great men from this church who stepped up and stood behind me all the way. And it was incredible to watch them rally around me. So I'm so thankful to the pastoral staff and Rick Talcott for how they helped us navigate these different things. And as of three weeks ago, we went back before the city and we stood before them. And the beauty of it was... We brought people in the body of Christ to bear witness to the love of Christ. On public record, it is now stated that people of Compass Bible Church Tustin love one another. Yeah, you can clap for that. I, I love that. You can clap for that. And there is no doubt that God is doing a work there. So we have the CUP, which we praise God for, and we're looking forward to that. That's big news. I mean, we just have big news there. There's big news everywhere. You guys heard the, the queen died, right? That's big news. That's 70 years of a monarch reigning, and now there's this transition. It's incredible to think about the big things going on in our world today. It's very interesting to, to listen to people recount their interactions with the queen. You know, everybody, because she's so prominent, has some sort of story, but the ones I love listening to the most are the ones of the people who are so close to her. One of them was told by a man uh, by the name of Richard uh, Griffin, I think his name is. He was head of security for her. And he recounts this incredible story. See, the queen would often go on walks. And she'd go on walks, and so Richard would be there with her as her security detail. And as they're walking, because the queen was a notably kind person, she would greet the people who would come in contact with her. And she would engage them in conversation. And he remembers, frankly, this one day, where they were walking up, and they saw these two people, and it was clear that they weren't from over there, that they were actually American travelers. And they stopped both Richard and the queen. But because she's walking, she's not dressed in any sort of you know, regal regalia. She's just wearing whatever queens wear when they're not wearing their normal regalia stuff. They're just out there walking. I'm not sure on the queen's fashion. But she was out there, and it was clear that they didn't understand that this was the queen. So they're just engaging in, in conversation, going back and forth. And because the queen was an older woman, they go, so how long have you lived over here? And she goes, about 80 years. And they went, wow, 80 years. You must have met the queen. <laughs> to which she replied, well, I've never actually met her, but Richard here has. <laughs> and the attention then goes from the queen to now Richard, who they think is a celebrity, because he's met the queen. So now they're talking to Richard, and they're going, what's the queen like? And Richard, because he had been with her so long, said he, he poked at her a little bit. He goes, well, the queen is a little cantankerous, but she's got a great sense of humor. And as soon as he finished that, Richard said this, 
the guy takes off his backpack, reaches into his pocket, pulls out a camera, and hands it to the queen and puts his arm around Richard. <laughs> and he says, can you take a picture with me and Richard? And so the queen obliges and takes a picture of him. Then Richard goes, I think it would be good for you to get a picture with this woman, not, I, not revealing her identity. Takes a picture with her, sends them on their way, and the queen and Richard are walking. As they're walking, the queen says this, what I wouldn't give to be a fly on the wall when those people show those pictures to their friends. And then she said this, I hope someone will tell them who I am. Think about that. Those people were in the presence of royal majesty, and they had no idea. What would it feel like if that was you, and you had interacted with royal, regal majesty, and you had conducted yourself in just a common way? How would you feel the moment that you realized, oh my goodness, that was the queen, that was her majesty. I was in the presence of the one who rules over the nation. I treated her as if she was a common person. I would assume you would feel things like embarrassment, shame, disappointment. Can I say, though, I think it's probably a temptation for people all across churches to stand in the presence of holy majesty and not be affected by it at all. One of the things I love about Compass Bible Church, one of the distinctives that we have, is that our church maintains a high view of God. How are you doing with that? How is that manifesting in your life? Because each and every day we have the opportunity to interact with not just some person who has some sort of rule over a piece of this earth, we serve and worship the majestic God who rules over all. And you and I can interact with him every single day, but do we treat him with the awe and respect that he deserves, or do we treat him as common? My hope this morning is that as we look at some attributes of God, it will lift our hearts and our minds to want to always treat him with the glory that he deserves. And with that in mind, let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah 57. There can't be a better book to lift our thoughts about God than the book of Isaiah. He takes these grand and great pictures of God and presents them to us, God speaking through him, revealing who he is. In Isaiah 57, verses 14 and 15, these two short verses are verses that are so impactful because they reveal to us the beauty and nature of the God that we serve. Isaiah chapter 57, verses 14 and 15 says this, And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. As you read and reflect about certain statements made in the Bible, you know that people who have come in contact with God have not treated him the way that he deserves. 
I'm struck every time I read it of the patriarch Jacob. Genesis 28, 16 says, surely God was in this place and I did not know it. Can you imagine a person making a statement when they realize the presence of God had been there all along and they were unaware of it? Or in Psalm chapter 50, verse 21, Israel has this mistake. And he says, Israel, your mistake is this, that you think I'm one just like you. How can you have come into contact with the God of the universe and think for a moment that he's like you? If you know him as holy, you realize he is completely other. But that's a temptation for you and I if we don't bow in majesty to the holiness of God. What does he say in verse 14, the book of Isaiah? Build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. Now, we are diving into a book, so we want to give just a little bit of context so we know where we are. If you know anything about the book of Isaiah, you can break it down just rudimentary into two big sections. 1 through 39 is really dealing with judgment and condemnation that will come to those who don't recognize the reign of Yahweh. And those are people who you would assume would receive that, the nations that war against God. But there's another group of people that's included in that, and that is God's people himself, the children of Israel. The book opens with this phrase, an ox knows his master and a donkey his stable, but my people don't know me. And so they're brought under the indictment of not treating God with the respect and the dignity and the nobility that he deserves because they've gone after other things in worship. Then we have a switch, chapter 40 to 66. There's a tone change. It's no longer judgment and condemnation coming from Yahweh, but now salvation and redemption and hope culminating in the rescue of the servant who will suffer for the sins of the people. We find ourselves in that section. If you want to go deeper into the book of Isaiah, I believe Pastor Kellen in Adult Bible Fellowship did like an overview. You can download that. If you download that and enjoy it, you can send him an email later, say, hey, thanks, I enjoyed it, and then ask him this question, why doesn't Compass Active have a pickleball team? Because I want to know that. I want to know. Fastest growing sport in America. I just made that stat up, but I think it's true. Why don't, we have a, why don't we have a pickleball team compass active? I think it's because he's scared to play me, but that's just a rumor I'm starting. Tell Pastor Kellen he did a good job. That's all you need to tell him. Don't tell him about pickleball. But you can get that full, the fullness of that. But I think with that understanding, we realize, okay, what is going on here is a request made from a messenger. Verse 14 says, we are to build up and prepare the way, remove every obstruction. This would not be news to the people who are hearing this because it's a phrase that's repeated over and over again. Why does it need to be repeated? Because it's calling for something that's necessary if God is holy and majestic. And what is necessary if God is who he says he is and he is to have this people be his people, what is necessary is that the people Repent. So number one on your outline, write it down this way. Let's recognize the life-altering call of repentance. Do you understand why it is so important that we get repentance right? Because repentance unites us into a relationship with the God of the universe. And it is not something that comes in and just shifts a few things around or makes a few minor changes. Repentance is a life-altering 
altering call. Everything about you must change now that you do know the God of the universe. Know how he, notice how he said it. Prepare the way. Remove every obstacle, obstruction from my people's way. Now, this is not saying that their repentance is what is going to deliver them. What will deliver them is the presence of the king. When the king comes, he is the hope. He is the deliverer. He is their salvation. But if the king is coming, then you better prepare the way for him. Make it straight. Remove the obstacles that are in the way. Turn with me to Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. We'll see this is a similar call and why it's necessary. Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. If you know anything about the New Testament, this is a, a applied to John the Baptist as he sees Jesus coming and he's calling the people there to repentance, the children of Israel. Isaiah chapter 40, verses three to five. Notice this, it says, a voice cries in the wilderness, here we go, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain be brought low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Why? Because the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God's glory is coming. Therefore, we have to remove the obstructions, the things that are in the way, what is uneven, because we want the king of glory to have smooth access to come and bring his deliverance. You can write down Isaiah 62.10. You will see a very similar call there. Isaiah 62.10 will repeat that same call to prepare the way. What are these obstructions? Can you go back to Isaiah 57? What are these obstructions that we are talking about? Well, I think it could be any number of things, but in the context, we have one that is a big blight on the history of the children of Israel. So we are in Isaiah 57, 14. Look up one verse, Isaiah 57, 13. What are some of these obstacles? Isaiah 57, 13 says this. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. So one of the obstacles that the people of Israel, the people who should know God out of all the nations whom he has chosen and set his love on, they have a problem that they've taken their love and they've given it to something else, to an idol. Idolatry was a huge problem for the children of Israel. The Old Testament is just a mess of display of the people going after other gods. What is idolatry like in the Bible? Idolatry is a tangible thing for them, isn't it? They have statues and they construct these different edifices so that they can put their attention on something physical. That's what the children of Israel did in the high places, for instance. They would worship other gods and these idols are obstructions. Why? Because if there is one God and if he is holy, he alone deserves worship. And if you give that worship to something else, you now have an idol. So Israel, if that's what's going on, you must remove those. You have to take them and get them out of your way. Can you turn with me to a passage though? Ezekiel chapter 14. I think we might excuse ourselves. Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 1 to 7. We might excuse ourselves because we don't have these 
you know, edifices that we're constructing or these statues that we're putting together. But just because our idolatry is more subtle doesn't mean it isn't just a savage. Listen to the way that the idolatry is described in Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 1 to 7. Just a few chapters over, a book, Ezekiel, that deals a lot with the holiness and glory of God is very concerned with the idols that have come in. And notice the way that it's talked about. Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 1 to 5 says this. Then certain elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have taken their idols, where? Into their hearts. And they set the stumbling blocks of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God, any one of the house of Israel who takes his idol into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet he comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with his multitude of idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel. Watch this. All who are estranged from me through their idols. Do you get and understand the stumbling block that is in Israel's way, the obstacles that they've put in? They have these other objects of worship, and God is not in the business of sharing his glory with anyone else. So he's saying, Israel, the king of glory is coming in, and these idols that you have, you have to remove them, not just physically, but also in your heart, because you've severed this relationship to me. I created you and designed you for my glory. Now give it to me. Will you get rid of idols? Like I said, our idolatry is way more subtle but it's just a savage. Let me give you a quick definition of an idol, okay? It's alliterated, I'm a preacher, I do it by nature, okay? So I'm gonna go very fast, I'll repeat it a couple times. An idol is anything that steals your attention, affection, adoration, or allegiance that belongs to God alone. An idol is anything that steals your attention, affection, adoration, or allegiance that belongs to God alone. We don't have them constructed physically, but they're there in your heart. Look at your relationships. Look at money. Look at entertainment. Look at status. All of those things, while they don't have a physical form, are in your heart and you crave them, or you long for their approval, or they make you happy, or you give devotion to them. How do you identify them? You, you want to know a trick? Go look at your calendar. Take a look at your calendar and see what fills it, because then you're going to see where your attention is. And then notice the events that you look forward and long to. And then notice what you talk about with other people on your calendar. And all of these different things, notice what you will not give up. Like if you have you, if you have a tea time, you will not give that up. You have allegiance towards it. All of those different things. You take a look at that calendar and you will note very quickly, where does my heart belong? The Bible says to God and God alone. And if you have this idol, that's why it's a life-altering call. You cannot pursue the worship of something else and pursue the worship of God at the same time. Jesus said no one can serve two masters because he will be devoted to one and despise the others. If you think you can do it, 
it will come back to haunt you. Repentance is a life-altering call. Go back to uh, Isaiah 57. These obstacles, they're in the way. They're in the hearts of the people. Let's remove them. Let's get rid of them. He doesn't give the, the way to do it here in this passage. He gives the call for repentance, but he doesn't give it. I just want to give you a reference for the sake of time to look up later on. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 explains the process of repentance. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, you can just write that down. To remove these obstacles, these idols, Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is neared. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. That word return is repentance. How does this take place? When I forsake, I change I move, I switch one direction for the other, a life-altering direction, reorientation towards the worship of God. If you ever come to a wedding I do, I always put this in the formal vows. I make both people stand before God and witnesses and say this, I am willing to forsake all others for you. That's what you committed when you got married forsaking all others. Devotion and love and affection will go nowhere else but to you alone. Why do you think in the New Testament the Christian relationship to Jesus is pictured with marriage in Ephesians 5? Because there's a covenant allegiance and adoration and devotion that goes to one because we've forsaken all others. Have you met the God of the universe? Do you know his majesty? If you have, this life-altering call of repentance must come in. Your life cannot be the same way when you've met the God of the universe. Do we have any people from Chicago in here? We got a few, okay. We got some Midwesterners. I feel at home with the Midwesterners. We're the people, when you see at the beach, we got the farmer's tan going on, okay? We don't know how else to get tan. We just have farmer's tan. You'll identify, oh, it's a person from the Midwest. They don't know how to get tan. Farmers tan everywhere. Midwest people, they're great people. Chicago, great town. I was actually uh, watching a video, very uh, interesting, about the history of the development of Chicago. You know how Chicago was just this burgeoning city in the 1800s. It was just growing. A lot of different things happened. They had the fire and all those different things, but it's just a city that was, uh, was growing. And in Chicago, they have the Chicago River that cuts through it, okay? So they got the Chicago River, which flows through it, and it goes to Lake Michigan. And Lake Michigan is where the people of Chicago get their water. It's where their water supply came from. But there's a problem. With a growing city, why does the city grow? Well, because more people are coming, and more commerce is coming. And at that time, more animals are coming into the town. So if all these things are happening, that means we're accumulating a lot of trash and waste and human refuse. All this stuff is just coming. So what do we do with it? Well, they weren't too smart back in the day, and they took that, and they just dumped it in the river and said, now it's the river's problem. But guess what? If you dump it into the river that goes into the place where your drinking water is, it's not the river's problem. It's going to be your problem again very soon. And so they dumped their trash and all their refuse and all the disgusting stuff into there, and it would flow to where they would get their drinking water from. They would drink it, and then people would get sick and die. So they needed to figure this out. So a brilliant man, Ellis Chesborough, I believe is his name, came up with just this fascinating way to uh, fix the problem. 
he took a, he took a try first, and he said, we're going to dig some tunnels, okay? So he started to dig a tunnel deep, and it would go super long so that we could get drinking water from way out in Lake Michigan, not the, not the part right here where all the trash was going onto. We'll dig a pipe, and it will go way out into Lake Michigan. So we can continue to do the same things, continue to dump our trash and our waste and all this, not make any changes there. All we're going to do is just go a little bit further out to get fresh drinking water. What's the problem with that? Well, as the city continues to grow, more and more people come, means more and more trash. That means the trash is going to go out further and further. And plus the weather around Chicago with the winds and the rain push it out that way anyway. So it ended up not working because everything just gets pushed out there. They're still getting it in the drinking water. So what did Ellis Chessborough propose next? To alter the course of the river. When you take a look at this video, it's brilliant. He finds a place where he can literally shift the course of the river so that it will flow out away from the city and have this side flow into Lake Michigan and they will dump their trash and refuse this way so it will go away from them and now they will have life-giving water over here. That wouldn't happen if you continued in the same patterns, doing the same things. It took this life-altering, this redirection, reorientation of the bad away so that the good can overtake. That's repentance. If you think just feeling bad about your sin but continuing to do it, you're just doing the same thing and not changing your life. But if you believe God to be worthy of all, you will reorient your life from what is killing you to now what deserves glory. Do you understand the life-altering call of repentance? Isaiah, make sure you do. Take a look at verse 15. So notice, he's called them to repentance. Verse 15 says this, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He now introduces us to the God, or really a reintroduction to the God that Israel should have known. But don't skip over those first two words, because although they're small, they are building momentum. These tiny little particles, look at them, for thus. So what I just said, here's the reasoning behind it. And I want you to grasp this because what I'm about to say is going to rock your world. This is why you must reorient everything in your life because you're about to meet God. And what is his name? Holy. It's incredible to think about. So number two on your outlines, write it down this way. We need to meditate on the majesty of God. If we are people who say we know the God of the universe, our doctrine of God should cause us to understand how we live out the requisite humility called to us from the word of God. And to do that, we have to meditate on the majesty of God. And that's exactly what Isaiah does here. Don't skip over these little words. Prepare yourself. It's like when you see the word behold in the Bible. Behold, better buckle up because what's going to come next should rock your world. And this is what Isaiah says. He's going to give us three different things. The one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. For the sake of time, we're going to go through the first two fairly quickly. Let's take a look at them very quickly. Who is high and lifted up? I love that first word. The word high could be translated exalted, raised up. Very interesting word. And connected with um, lifted up or lofty, elevated. So these two terms together are going to speak of something that is in the upper echelons of what we can comprehend. This is one who is so far above us. 
the heavens and the highest heavens can't contain God. And this is where he is. This is who he is, the one who is high and lifted up. Very interesting about that first word, high or exalted. When it is applied to God, it is appropriate. But oftentimes, man tries to apply it to himself and exalts himself. Two scripture references just to write down. We won't turn there. Isaiah 2, 12 to 17. Isaiah 2, 12 to 17 speaks about the Lord alone being raised up. And anybody who does that in pride will be torn down. Isaiah 2, 12 to 17. And then can you write down Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 14? Just listen to what verse 14 says. Deuteronomy 8, 11, 14. There it warns. Be careful not to forget Yahweh. Why? Because then your heart will be lifted up and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. The word lifted up there is the word high or exalted here. So if you forget God, your heart gets lifted up and you think you are the most important person in the world. We have to meditate on the majesty of God when he says he's high and lifted up. He's one of one, the only one there who can achieve this status of nobility and dignity and authority. He is the king, no one else. I don't care who just took over in England or France or whoever else has a monarchy. There is one king and his name is holy. You and I need to make sure we meditate on that. Number two, look, he inhabits eternity. That's incredible. That's where he dwells. That's his house. That's his timeshare is eternity. This is the God that we serve. And this shouldn't be a surprise to these people. If you write down Isaiah 9, 6, this was a prophecy of the, um, the Messiah who would come. He would be the father of eternity. Same word here which shows us again the the deity of the one who would come in Isaiah 9, 6, the child born is God himself. And the only person who fits that is Jesus, but he inhabits eternity. This eternality means that he has no beginning or end and will always be faithful to his promises. Isn't that good when scripture says that this promise is an eternal promise? That means if God inhabits eternity, he's there, he's overseeing it. It will never be null and void. But let's focus on this last one, whose name is holy. This is incredible to think about. We're talking about the holiness of God. But notice how he introduces it. He doesn't just call him holy. He says his name is holy. That's very important. In the Bible, names are highly significant, aren't they? When you think of the name of God, I want you to think of this phrase, the ontological outworking of God. The ontological outworking of God. When you see the name of God, it is the ontological outworking of God. What is ontological? Essence, being, who he is and what he does. And that's what the name of God represents. That's what names were in the Bible. You could know the person's character. We don't, we don't treat names that way, or I can at least speak for myself. We don't treat names that significant. My wife and I, we have five sons. And to be honest, like people ask, like, do your sons, do their names mean something? And we're always like, no, they don't, they don't mean anything. We had two super superficial uh, qualifications for naming our sons. 
Number one, it has to be a cool name. Okay? That was just it, superficial. We have to think it's a cool name. Why? Because they're all boys, and if they look like their dad, I gotta set them up with something. So if I can at least give them a cool name, then I send them out with something. I think we hit it five for five. I'll share the names with you afterwards if you wanna know. Five for five, gotta be a cool name. Secondly, it cannot rhyme with anything that they can be made fun of, okay? Smelly Kelly, Silly Billy, all of these different names. We're not gonna give you know, fodder to the bullies who are out there. Those are the only two qualifications, and that was it. We don't think significantly about it. But the Bible, oh, when it talks about the name, it means something. And God's name is holy. Listen to how one theologian described the name of God. This is so brilliant. He says this, God's name is his uniqueness. As the bearer of his name, God is not indeterminate deity, but the self-determining one who is beyond the reach of any comparison or class. And so when human speech takes it upon itself to repeat the name of God, it does not ascribe, but confess. Talk of the divine attributes is thus not a proposal or a projection of a category onto God. It is the repetition of the name, which does not add to or go beyond, but simply utters as something which cannot be enhanced, mastered, or resolved into anything other than itself. Do you grasp what God is doing? He is revealing who he is. You and I don't get to tell God who he is or who we want him to be. There is no projection of our wishes and desire. God comes and says, this is who I am. You worship me. How do you treat the holiness of God? God's name is holy. Are you as a Christian embarrassed by that? When you share your faith, when you go live out in the world, God calls you to be holy. Are you embarrassed by the God who is greater than all? Or do you proclaim his name? Do you confess his name? He's not asking for any insight. He's not taking any polls. Who should I be? He tells you who he is, and his name is holy. I think we need to park on this for a moment. Let's talk about the holiness of God I'm going to give you a definition of what I think it means for God to be holy. This is God's holiness, okay? God's holiness, you can put the definition up there, is his unique, supreme set-apartness that is dedicated to his glory. This is God's holiness. God, God and God alone, his unique, supreme set-apartness that is dedicated to his glory. The Hebrew word has that idea of set-apartness or, or consecrated or removed from what is common, not like a creation, but, but greater than it, the grandeur, the majesty, everything that you can think of that describes God as truly awesome is bound up in the word holy, and God says, that's my name. And notice that he's dedicated to his glory. I want to give you three passages. Just write the first two down, and we'll turn to the last one. Exodus 15.11. Exodus 15.11. I love this passage. Now consider this, okay? This is Exodus 15.11. If you know the book of Exodus, Exodus 15.11 is a song of praise from the deliverance of the people out of Egypt. But if you read chapter 14, there wasn't a lot of praise going on. There was a lot of complaining. 
and there was a lot of blaming, and there was a lot of victimization of themselves. When the people of Israel had systematically observed God, Yahweh come in and say, I am so much greater than Pharaoh. Watch me take down all of his gods and get you out of there. But when the people faced one more obstacle, all their faith was gone. How dare they treat the holiness of God that way? But what does he do? Splits the sea, brings his people through, destroys their enemies, and then they get it. And they sing, you are a God majestic in holiness. That's who God is. He is the only one worthy. Second one, 1 Samuel 2.2. 1 Samuel 2.2. Incredible to think about this one. This is Hannah, right? Hannah just longs for a child, goes to God, pours out her heart to God. God answers her prayer. And she comes back in praise again, and says this, 1 Samuel 2.2, there is no one holy like the Lord. Nobody, no one holy like him. That's a pretty incredible statement because now we're post the law being given to Israel. We're post them hearing, you shall be holy as I am holy a couple times in the book of Leviticus. But Hannah rightly observes that there is a category of God's holiness, his unique, supreme set-apartness that no one is holy like him. The last one, though, I want you to turn to, Isaiah 6.3. If you hear a sermon on holiness and they don't turn you to Isaiah 6.3, you're not doing your job right, okay? Isaiah 6.3, in the same book, these grand visions of who God is. He wants us to know who he is. He's revealed himself to us. Watch this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon the throne. You think some people in Britain are feeling that way right now? They're monarchs, dead. They're in a new place. What did Isaiah see when they lost their king? The great king. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to the other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What is so beautiful when you begin to look at the scriptures and you see the holiness of God, the, the holiness and glory of God have this confluence where they come together where you can almost not be able to break them apart because they're speaking about the transcendent greatness of God. And here God has chosen to reveal himself because it is his right to tell us who he is. And he chooses three times to repeat this attribute, holy, holy, holy. What other attribute of God does that? None. God has the right to tell us who he is. We confess it. And the one attribute he chooses to repeat three times, and he does it twice in the Bible, here and in Revelation, is that I am holy. Do you realize that when God says, this is my name, I'm telling you who I am, that is significant because God was under no obligation to reveal himself to us after what we did to him in the garden. Do you realize what happened? Adam and Eve did what? took their attention, took their adoration, took their affection and their allegiance, and they gave it to the creation rather than the creator. That's Romans 1. 
And since that day, God owed us nothing. But in his grace, he tells you who he is. And he's revealed himself to be holy. This should bring us a sense of awe and wonder. Because if we don't handle it right, it's not going to go well for us. Can you go with me to one more passage? Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. There were met with a couple people who should have known the holiness of God. Nadab and Abihu. Consider what this means. Leviticus 10, 1 through 3 says this. Now when Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took his censer and put fire in it and laid the incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified or I will be holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. See again the the confluence of glory and holiness coming together when you're in the presence of God. But then watch this phrase, and Aaron held his peace. That means he didn't question what God just did which was to destroy his sons. Parents in the room, if that happened to your kids, would you hold your peace because you understood the holiness of God or would you go at him and tell him he has no right to do that? God can do what he wishes. My God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Why? Because he is holy. And it wasn't as if this is not news to the people. This is why we look at this passage. Nadab and Abihu from Exodus chapter 30 heard God's revelation. Don't give me unauthorized fire. This is what will happen. And these people who were near the Lord committed this. Now, what about you on a Sunday morning? What about you coming into church? What about you when you open your Bibles? Are you treating it as if this is common? as if you're just walking in the park, talking to a person and not recognizing the majesty that is presented before you. God is holy and will be glorified. We've got to meditate on the majesty of God. Did you hear it back in Isaiah 6? Did you hear how he described the throne? High and lifted up. That's the same thing that we had in our passage in Isaiah 57. High and lifted up. And both of them had the holiness of God. Do you think God is concerned with his majesty? He's repeating it over and over again to the people, but they're not getting it. They're not slowing down enough to see it. I have uh, two friends. Well, I have more than two friends, but it might surprise you. I have more than two friends. I have two friends. A few few summers ago, it was pre-pandemic, so I can't remember the exact date. It all blends together before the pandemic. Um, Two friends who went and saw the same landmark in the same summer. It's incredible. So I purposefully asked both of them, like, hey, like, what was your reaction to it? Two friends visiting the same landmark, and they had completely different responses. The first friend I talked to 
said, hey, I heard you're going to Mount Rushmore. That's the landmark that they had set up. They didn't set it up. They didn't carve it out of stone, sorry. That's the landmark that they were driving by. I said, hey, what, what was it like? Like, I've never been there. Tell me about it. He's like, I couldn't really tell you about it. We drove up to it, and we saw it from a distance, and it didn't look super interesting. We didn't even get out of our car, and then we drove on. So that was one reaction from a friend who saw Mount Rushmore, okay, those big heads of presidents who played such a major role in our nation's history. To them, ah, I'm not even going to get out of the car. And I talked to my other friend. I said, so tell me about Mount Rushmore. Completely different response. It was as if it was the greatest thing they'd ever observed. Like, wh why do you think that? Oh, because they got out of their car and they walked up to it, got as close as they could get, spent hours there observing it, talked to people around them, read the plaques that were there, did research on the internet, everything they could to soak up the beauty of what they saw. Every single day, you and I have that opportunity. Will you drive by the grandeur of God and not let it affect you? Or will you crack open the Bible? Do you know what the Apostle Paul says of the Scripture in Romans 1-2? They are the holy Scriptures that present to us the holiness of God. What about Sunday morning? Will you walk out of here unaffected by the Word of God? Take the preacher out of it and read those verses yourself and ask if your heart doesn't begin to increase and elevate because you realize this is the God that I serve where I'm hoping I end up one day in his holy presence and I get to worship him. Or are you going to drive by and let it not affect you? You have to meditate on the majesty of God. So what does it mean for us to be holy? That's a question we should answer quickly. If the holiness of God is his unique, supreme set-apartness, I think when God calls us to be holy, we just chop that first part off and we put it away because it's not ours. It belongs to God and God alone. But our holiness is this, our set-apartness and dedication to the glory of God. So when God calls his people, 1 Peter 1.16, to be holy as he's holy, we can't take on the unique, supreme transcendence of God but we can be fully dedicated to glorifying him in all our conduct, as the text says. Are you ashamed of the holiness of God? Take a look at your life. What is it dedicated to? Is there an idol stealing it? You have to repent and give glory to the holy God of the universe. Back to Isaiah 57. Notice what he said there. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. We're going to have some repetition here. Show you again, it's important. I dwell in the high and holy place. Okay? That's where he is. I'm dwelling in the exalted place, the lofty place, the, the elevated place. That's where I am. And it's holy, just so you know. I'm dwelling up here. This is just like the glory dwelling in the tabernacle. This is where I dwell. And let me ask you this question. What do you think would come after that? What statement would be made after God says, I'm high and holy, this is where I dwell? What do you think would be the next phrase? If you talk to anybody today, there's, you, know, you can go on uh, the internet, social media, you can see people, they always say things like this. If you want to be a millionaire, surround yourself with millionaires. You want to be successful, surround yourself with people who are successful. Same passion, same things. That's how you get ahead. So, 
maybe we would expect, okay, if there's a God who's up here, then he's going to talk about something else that's elevated, something else that's great, another good thing about him, but he doesn't go higher, he comes lower. And he says, I also dwell with him who is contrite and lowly of spirit. Number three on your outline, write it down this way. Let the holiness of God bring you humility. Allow the holiness of God to bring you humility. That is the amazing mystery of the transcendence and eminence of the holiness of God. That God would be so holy, and yet that holiness does not lead to isolation, but it leads to an invitation of those who are humble to dwell with him. That's incredible. This God that we've just spent time meditating on says, I will dwell with the lowest of the low. Why would he do that? Well, we learn later on in the book of 1 Corinthians why he does that. Why does he choose the weak and the low and the despised? So that no one may boast, but boast in the Lord. God chooses to dwell with the lowly because he realizes we will never take the glory because we realize we don't deserve it. Look at this. How, how can he dwell with the contrite and the lowly? See that word contrite? It means crushed, okay? It talks about crushed in spirit, but it's actually already been used in the book of Isaiah. Flip back a few passages to Isaiah 52, 13. Isaiah 52, 13. How can a holy God dwell with an unholy people? Isaiah 52, 13. We're introduced to the servant of Yahweh here. It's oftentimes confusing. In the second half of Isaiah, there's this character, the servant of Yahweh, and it's hard to identify who it is at times. Sometimes it could be the nation of Israel, maybe a king, maybe the promised Messiah. We're not always sure, but I think in this passage, we have great clarity that this is the coming Messiah. How can we know that? Look at Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Okay, so we're about to meet the servant of the Lord. What are his characteristics? What are his qualities? What does he say of the servant of the Lord? 53, uh, 52, 13 says this. The servant of the Lord shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Where have we heard that terminology in the book of Isaiah? 57 and 6 of Yahweh and his glory. And now the servant is able to bear that. That can be none other than Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God. And what did he do? 53 verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteem him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement brought upon us for peace, and by his wounds we are healed. See that phrase, he was crushed, for our iniquities, that same word crushed is the same word contrite in our passage. How can a holy God dwell with a crushed people? By crushing his son for their sins. In fact, he uses that word later on in verse 10 to say, the Lord was pleased to crush his son so he could dwell with those who were crushed in spirit. This is the mystery of the gospel, that he would do that. Flip back to 57, 15. I dwell with him who is contrite. Notice we have that repeated at the end of it. 
You have a nice little chiasm there. Contrite and lowly, lowly and contrite. He's going to revive the spirit in the heart of these people. Because we get to be with God, we live life the way that it is meant to be. What an incredible statement. We don't have to live life in dour, depressing uh, despair all the time. We know the God of the universe who created all things and is coming back to redeem his people. He will enliven our hearts when we recognize our need for him, when we humble ourselves because of his holiness. Notice that word lowly. It's a beautiful word. Just write down Psalm 138, verse 6. Psalm 138, verse 6, which says this. Psalm 138, verse 6 says, For though the Lord is high, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Those, Isaiah 57, 15, and Psalm 138, verse 6, encapsulate the storyline of the Bible. You understand almost everything you need to know based on those verses. For our people, I call it theology 101. God is great, I'm small, yet he cares for me. That's the basics. When you understand that, you have everything you need to worship God and be on your journey to meditate more and come to know him more and more. So what should we do? Well, I think the way that Isaiah closed his book is a way for us to make sure that we always remain humble and lowly. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, for thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is a house that you would build for me or a place that I would rest? For my hands made all these things, thus all these things came into being. But to this one will I look, to him who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. When we do that, we find the humility needed. I'm not a big social media user. I don't particularly like it. It's not just because I'm a curmudgeon and I'm an old man and I don't like to use those things. I just, I don't find it interesting. I do like to watch some pickleball videos every now and then. Um, so I was scrolling to look at some pickleball videos the other day. I guess that really does make me an old man. Like, I like pickleball and I'm, I don't like social media, so I'm a really old man. It's fine. So I'm looking at this, and I see uh, a video that stops me in his tracks. And it says, look at this exciting, amazing video. I'm like, okay, you got my attention. What do you want me to see? He says, I'm going to show you the aurora borealis. This guy had taken a camera and brought it out there. And he says, I captured a substorm. A substorm is when some scientific thing happens that I don't understand where just this green light emanates everywhere and it looks amazing when you see it. And he goes, I captured it on camera. And I said, all right, buddy, show it to me and I'll be amazed. So I watched the video. Guess what happened? Nothing. It's just a video. Now, why wouldn't that matter to me? Because it's taking something so great and putting it on a three-inch screen and I'm not really there to experience it. That's not going to give me awe. I'm sure the man who saw that was in awe because there are parts of creation that declare the glory of God. We can see those things, and we can genuinely find awe in them. And as that happened, I actually read an article from a secular psychologist who was recommending that people get more awe into their life. Listen to what he said. He said, one important distinction about having awe versus other emotions is that awe makes us feel small and feel a sense of self-diminishment in science speak. And that's good for us. What I find so funny is when secular psychology just goes to the Bible and just steals all of its treasures and puts it over here and says, look what we discovered. Everything that he just said right there, God has said to us in these verses 
The self-diminishment that comes when you experience the God of the universe, not by some vague drive-by or some small video screen, but you put yourself in the presence of the holiness of God, it brings diminishment for our good. But let me say this to the secular psychologist who has a materialistic worldview. Your worldview has no definition of awe, but ours does because we had the God, we have the God who created all things. And we must worship him as holy. So let us go to God right now and ask that he'd give us the grace to make sure that we worship him for all that he has done. God, you are great and greatly to be praised. I thank you, Father, for how you have saved us and redeemed us. Lord, you have been so good and you are holy. Help us to recognize that, God, and therefore change us to be more holy so we would be dedicated to your glory. And Father, because you are so great, we want to worship you today. And so thank you for giving us that opportunity. May we walk away changed by your Holy Spirit through your Holy Scriptures. In your Son's wonderful name we pray. Amen.